Fail. Are you listening? Damn. Uh. Yeah. Uh. Okay, Hattie, before you get into your interview, I'm just going to jump in first and I'm having a chat to Abby Coleman, who's a sports scientist with Precision Hydration. How are you going, Abby? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for giving up your time. Now, you're in the Midlands in UK. What's the weather like over there? Right now, we've got a bit of blue sky, but it wasn't like this yesterday. It was very grey, so we're kind of having some freak warm days and some very cool days. Great. And you're a sweat expert. Is that the strangest job definition you've ever had? It absolutely is. It absolutely is. And people love that. We get so many comments saying, oh, I love your job title. And I, I've, I've started to say just sports scientist now because it gets less questions. That's right. Hey, um, I noticed that you used to work at the Porsche Human Performance Centre. What's that involve? So I, I did work there. I worked there as an exercise physiologist. So we did a lot of work with motorsport athletes. Predominantly, my side was sort of the younger athletes um, with their training and their fitness testing, a bit of heat acclimation and some nutritional coaching. But it was a, a very cool centre in that we also did a lot of work with endurance athletes as well. So lots of triathletes and runners and cyclists would, would come to us also. And it was through my, my work there that I encountered precision hydration and we did the testing there and out of working there grew my role for pH really. Yeah, so is that what your focus is now on endurance athletes with precision hydration? Yeah, definitely endurance athletes are the people we seem to work with a lot, but we are sort of in a in a whole range of sports now. We do quite a lot of work in the US with baseball, uh, American football, some ice hockey, basketball, and in the UK, quite a bit of soccer um, and rugby. So I'd, I'd say endurance sport is is a lot of our sort of uh, B2C business, you know, to customers. Our, our online audience is a, is a lot of endurance athletes, but we do a lot of work in pro teams as well. So pretty varied, really. Okay, good. What's your favourite area? What, what, what do you like to work in? Anything sweat, Matt. Anything sweat. I, I love the research side of it. I think there's there's some good research in the area already, but it's largely under-researched compared to a lot of areas out there. I think there's a lot of questions that we would still like answered. Um, so I'm looking forward to diving into those in the next couple of years, really. Cool. And so tell us a, a, a bit about your organisation as a whole. Yeah, so we are now a team of 11. Um, so Andy, Andy Blows, the founder, he started it up um, and now we've we've grown and we're sort of a, a global company. And what we do is we sweat test. But what that kind of means and in, involves is the ultimate aim is we specialize in personalized hydration strategies. So we try and match how athletes sweat with what they're replacing. And when we say that, we specifically mean sodium. We talk a lot about sodium, but that also means fluid because the two go hand in hand. Um, so rather than a kind of a one size fits all approach, we like to individualize it and, and match the athlete's needs to their requirements. And we know that everyone is very different. So there's a market for that and a, a need for that. 
Um, and that's kind of where our different strength electrolytes come in. But that all comes off the back of either taking our online test on the website or taking the advanced test. So we get an idea of an athlete's needs and then we prescribe them a strategy. Do you, um, I've, I've tried and I like your electrolyte tablets. Are, are they the, and you, you mentioned the different strengths, and so I've been using them for training and racing. So is that uh, primarily your, your, your product that you're, you're doing, uh, electrolytes? Yeah, absolutely. That's pretty much our, our sole thing is electrolytes. We just focus on hydration and sodium. Um, we have the Everessent tablets, as you mentioned, we have our all-natural powder drink mixes, so slightly different formats. The tablets are virtually zero calorie, so if you want to solely fuel from real foods, they would be your option. They're also very handy for mixing up on the go. The powder mixes are the all-natural range and have a small amount of glucose in. Still very much a hypertonic drink, but give a small boost of energy, no artificial sweetener, which some athletes weren't keen on. So they're the two main product ranges four different strengths of each and then we also have our sweat salt capsules which are a really good option if you're not going to run with a bottle or carry a bottle whatever that activity is you're doing they can be taken with just plain water so for triathletes for example they're great to have with you for the run section when you can just take them alongside plain water off aid stations they come in a nice blister packet format which can be cut up and they prevent them from being ruined so that's kind of the third range, really. Okay. It's like an intensive sort of salt dose, is it? Yeah, not too intensive in that one capsule, uh, one sweat salt capsule is the equivalent of our pH 500 strength, which is like our moderate strength, really. Um, but you would need three of those to be equivalent to a 1500. Gotcha. Yep. Very good. All right. So if our listeners want to um, check out your product range, they can visit your website, Precision Hydration. And we've actually got a discount code for them, which is Running Matters, all capitals, and the number 15. And that'll give them 15% off the entire first order of electrolytes. So, Abby, it's been great chatting to you. I look forward to our future chats. Um, Enjoy the rest of this lovely day in the UK. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. Bye. Bye-bye. Welcome to episode 62 of Running Matters Podcast. I am your host, Paul Hadfield, and today I'll be speaking with a uh, true legend of the Ultra Trail Australia franchise, I guess, John O'Loughlin. He's been to every version of the 100-kilometre race for the last 12 years culminating in a second place in last year's event in a time of nine hours and 42 minutes. So a fantastic athlete. Uh, before we get started, I'd just like to thank our podcast partners, Guy Allied Health, Basecamp Altitude, Runulla, Goo Energy, Fractel Running Caps, Precision Hydration, T8 Run and Sydney Brewery. Also, like to thank Jimmy Carroll for his constant and tireless work behind the scenes. Thank you, Jimmy. And without further ado, we'll get Jono on. Okay, welcome to the show, Jono O'Loughlin. How are you, mate? I'm good, mate. Yeah, going really well, actually. Good. Yeah. Uh, thanks for joining us. So, um, UTA should be this weekend coming up. Uh, so, how is this week looking compared to a normal taper week for the big race? 
Yeah, it's it's looking massively different actually. It's uh, you know normally I'd be just like just completely focused on the race, wouldn't even be thinking about work. I probably wouldn't even be coming into the office for the second half half of the week. Um, this week is completely different though. We're just you know it's all it's all work at the moment. We're preparing for a um, a big trial. I'm a lawyer, so by trade do um, disputes and litigation. So we've got a few big matters in court, and it's all focused on that rather than. UTA. So part of me is actually a little bit relieved, to be honest, that um, that we don't have it this weekend, but also obviously very disappointed as well. It's something I look forward to every year. So um, yeah, mixed yeah, emotions in that regard, but completely different week. Uh, probably a lot more running than I'd normally do in the mm. build up to a UTA uh, to UTA. You know, where you'd only I'd probably only knock over 20 20k tops. All easy running. So this week I've been doing a bit more training, um, but yeah, completely uh, different setup. And a little bit less carbohydrate loading, I assume. Yeah, probably a lot, a lot more eating. Definitely a few more beers than normal. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to hear. Good yeah. to hear. Now we're coming out of ISO, and you can actually catch up with people as well. So, mate, it's yeah. positive. It's yes, nice. that's it. There's, there's the silver linings. There is. So, mate, you've competed in every UTA 100 since its inception as the North Face. Uh, you managed some incredibly fast times, and I guess the crowning achievement would have to be second place in last year's event with a spectacular time of 9.42. So, firstly, a huge congratulations on that result. Um, but what is it about that particular race that keeps you hungry for more? Um, there's a few things. I mean, it was one of the first ultras I ever did. So back when it was the the North Face 100, when I did the first one, um, it was sort of a, you know, I'd done my first marathon. I think I'd done six foot maybe leading up to it. I'm like, there's this 100K race out there. How cool would that be if you could actually go out and run 100K? So it was my first, it was definitely the first ultra I ever did. And um, I just loved it. You know, I went out, it hurt a lot. Um, um, but it was, you know, painful in its uh, in its beauty, and it was, um, yeah, it was just such an epic event. And um, I've just seen to come back every year, and uh, really enjoyed the blue. I love I love the Blue Mountains as well. So heading up there every, you know, weekend leading up to the race, it's all part of the process. And I just really, um, yeah, there's something special for me about that event. Um, and then as as the years go on. You see the race getting bigger and bigger and more and more people getting into it. Become it's become a much more professional event from um, back in the humble days of the you know the the first North Face when there was only I think there was only about a hundred hundred guys or guys and girls that competed in the event. And um, you know, it was basically a little bush run. We all had our maps out, there was very little course marking. Halfway through, you'd have your compass in your map trying to figure out where you were. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> funny. Sandwiches in the backpack, rugby shorts on, Billabong backpack, um, Asics Kayano running shoes. Absolutely no idea what I was doing. Um, no idea about race nutrition. And uh, yeah, look what it is now. It's, you know, it's a um, totally a world class event. And, um, you know, it just, it just gets better and better each year, too. Yeah, it certainly seems to have really taken off. It's an amazing event, as far as trail running is concerned anyway. Um, I was just going to ask, ask about the nutrition and race kit. It seems to have come on a hell of a long way in that sort of 12 years 
So yeah, what what did your original sort of nutrition plan look like for the race? There was just no plan at all. So we, <laughs> it was just trial by error in the beginning. You get to 40k in and you wouldn't have had any food. You probably had no no water or very little water. And then you just start bonking. Uh, so I'd have, you know, a whole assortment of things at, at the checkpoints. And plus there was, you know, the, the standard jelly beans and um, Gatorade and stuff like that along the way. Uh, but really, yeah, like the plan was no plan. I, I think I did have some Vegemite sandwiches in the backpack for the, for the first UTA, um, some Coke and Gatorade. But, yeah, it was... Uh, it was very unsophisticated, I can tell you that. That's good. That's good to hear. I, I do like the trial by fire. Yeah. Um, what, what about the old footy shorts, mate? How do they go for 100Ks? Just disgraceful. <laughs> <laughs> you can just, just imagine that rubbing against the inside of your thighs for, I don't know what it, how long it took me on the, first, on the first go, but I think it was something like 12 or 13 hours. I think it was about 13 hours or something. But just imagine those rugby shorts on the inside of your thighs for 13 hours. It was, there's no amount of um, Vaseline that you can, <laughs> you can put on your legs to soothe that kind of chafing. <laughs> oh, mate, that sounds horrendous. Horrendous. Thank God for uh, Salomon taking it forward a few notches, mate. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't look as cool, but it certainly feels a lot better. You know, the, the old Lycra. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's good. How long did it take you to uh, jump into a pair of Lycra shorts and after that? Oh, it would have been a, it would have been a good few years, I think. It would have at least been probably four or five years before all the stuff started evolving to a a decent standard. So if if I think if the first one was in two thousand and seven, I reckon it wasn't until about 2010, 2011 that the gear started to become half decent. Okay. Where you had the proper ergonom- ergonomic backpacks, um, water bottles on the front. Um, you know, decent decent trail running shoes too were quite hard to come by until about 2010, I think, um, let alone the shorts and the, the Lycra. So I think I probably donned my first pair of Lycra the year that the last year it finished at the Fairmont was the last, it was the first time I wore some Lycra and that was that was in 2013, I think. Wow. <laughs> A good six years of chafe. That's impressive, yeah. mate. <laughs> Still ran in a pair of Sacconi Road running shoes, though, I think, that year, if I can recall correctly. Mate, it obviously worked okay. There you yeah. go. <laughs> that was, in fact, the first year I got under 10, uh, 10 hours. Mm-hmm. Um, that It was the, the last year of finish at the Fairmont. And I, I got my goal was to go 10 hours, and I finished in uh, nine 9.49 and 48 seconds. Wow. So it was um, 12 seconds under the 10-hour mark, which was, yeah, one of the one of the best moments for me in the in the history of that race, actually. Oh, mate, that's that's spectacular, particularly in a pair of road shoes, Jono. Yeah. Well done. <laughs> so, mate, you've, you've obviously got a huge bank of historical data when it comes to the UTA 100 and your training block in the lead-up to it. So do you have a key session that you like to tick off in the weeks before to say, yep, yeah, I'm ready to go? Yeah, there's a there's a little bit of that. Um, I think as the years have gone by, I've just figured out how to train better and better for that race. So in the like in the first, say, five years or even probably in the first leading up to the last year or two, 
I've found that I've trained, I've done too much hard and fast training and not focused on just easy running and lots of long, easy miles on tired legs. Um, so in the last couple of years, I've just focused on um, lots of, yeah, just, you know, 10, 12 Ks every day, heavy backpack on, tired legs, just trotting into work, um, practice running at race pace all the time. So um, if I'm, say, 50K in on the flats, I know that I want to be going a certain speed. Uh, so being able to train at that speed and be able to maintain it um, for long periods of time um, whilst being fatigued. But in terms of the key session, I think it's I think it's a bunch of key sessions that I like to focus on. And it's just the long run leading up to, so the weekly long run, either a Saturday or Sunday morning session between 40 and 55K um, on the front half of the UTA course. So always focus there. Recently when I've started being a bit more competitive in that race, it's always been focused training on the front front half of the course rather than the back end. Mm. Um, because what you in my like the way I approach it is you want to run through that front part easy. It, it needs to feel easy. So the more you practice it, the more you train it, the easier it's going to feel. Mm -hmm. So you can get through that front part with less fatigue in the legs, feeling easier, and then you can really sort of let it rip in the back in the back half. Mm. So key session for sure is, um, yeah, front half of the course, maybe with a bit of extra build into it. So last year I think my longest run was about 55K and I did a fair bit of running before hitting the front loop, yeah. then did the front loop, finished up at the, um, at the aquatic centre up there yeah. and, then I start, and then I worked the stairs through to Wentworth Falls on the really tired legs, which is sort of what happens on race day, right? Yeah, you, yeah. You do the front loop of the, the um, of the course and then hit that back, you hit that back 50 and it's all stairs on tired legs. So um, yeah, last year that was definitely one of the key sessions I did. And I, if, if it was this year, well, when it is this year, because I'm pretty confident we'll have it in October now, unless something crazy with this COVID stuff breaks out. But um, I think that, that'll be another key session I focus on. So, mm. yeah, front 50 for sure. Anyone out there training for UTA? Yeah. That's the guy. There'll be a few out there for sure. And yes. um, it's an interesting psychology. I think a lot of the listeners probably, myself included, uh, tend to do that back 40-odd K as a, you know, as a key session, I guess, leading yeah. up. But, yeah, I, I like the theory there. That's That's interesting. Yeah. I think Brendan Davies actually got me onto that theory and it was a bit of an eye-opener for me because I was always thrashing myself on the back end of the course, you know, mm -hmm. running stairs as hard as I could or doing reps of Kadamba, you know, the pace 22 out and back, you know, just thrashing myself down those hills. And um, Brendan, I think, mentioned it's all it's sort of won and lost in the first half and it's that's true. Um, so if that's my, my logic on that was, well, if that's where you win it and lose it, why not? train that part of the course yeah it's yeah certainly paid off it last year for me where i felt really good in the back end and i didn't even train that back end of the course at all in the um in the lead up to it okay mate that's great advice thank you mate it also looks like a lot of your training gets done in the cbd um and but obviously most of your successful races have been on fairly technical and hilly courses so what are you doing to bridge that gap in terrain or do you think the surface you run on is kind of irrelevant? Yeah, look, I think as I've 
as I figure things out just by trial and error, um, I think it just goes back to that running lots of long Ks on on tired legs because that's what happens in an ultra marathon. It's not, you know, it's not overly complicated. You know, you're running 50, pretty much 60K of 100K event, your legs are tired. So you want to know that your legs are going to be work pretty well when they're tired. So whether it's out in the trail or whether it's in the city, it's just that repetition, long miles on tired legs. Um, I find that running with a heavy backpack just as a part of the commute to and from work um, does replicate sort of running up those fire trails, you know, that you get in the UTA, the kind of long, um, grindy fire trails that are all quite runnable. Yeah. Um, sticking a heavy backpack on feels a bit like that. So um, I, I, I reckon that might help just, you know, training the flats, but also getting that similar feel to, to running uphill, mm-hmm. uh, but at a decent sort of tempo and just ticking over quite, quite steadily. And, and how much weight are you talking about in that pack, mate? I think, look, it does vary, but I've got a computer in there. Whatever a computer weighs. <laughs> Plenty. Work. Plenty. Boots for work. <laughs> um, <laughs> jeans, which I normally wear, uh, T-shirt, uh, whatever else is in there. So it's probably okay. about um, seven, K, 7 kilos, 7 to 10 kilos, something in that vicinity. Mate, that's that's enough. That's yeah. good. And that's then good. stick that on. And then in the, tra- in the lead up to the UTA, I'll... Um, I'll just sort of, I'll just try and grind out about 10, 12 Ks with that on in the morning and then tired, you know, you've got quite tired legs and then back, try and back up for a lunchtime session of, say, 8 K. Mm. And that's the, uh, if I can do that a few times a week, I'm pretty happy. Yeah, that's good. And, I, and I've heard some uh, some rumours of you knocking out a VK in an hour on Woolamaloo stairs there. Oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> Where did that come from? <laughs> oh, I've got a few sources for this podcast, actually, yeah. mate. I'll, uh, yeah, I might have done it because I did about 55 reps in an hour there one day, and um, and I think it might be around 20 metres or something per <laughs> per rep. So, yeah, I, it could have been. Yeah, so it was true. The rumours were true. Good. Yeah, Good. It, but it was probably slightly exaggerated too, like most of these things. <laughs> Mate, it's it's important. It's a, <laughs> it's a better story. Yeah, that's it. Mate, I also imagine there's an endless stream of corporate jocks out there to keep you honest during that lunch hour run. What's the competition like out there? Oh yeah, it gets pretty fierce. You know, during the um, the, the Tuesday and Thursday, there's a there's a group that goes out called Hurt Squad. So I tack I tack on with them. Uh, you know, occasionally, not all the time. Um, but yeah, like, there's some guys in that group that just absolutely smoke me oh, on the flat stuff, the flat fast stuff. You know, they just there's a few weapons in that group, a few guys that are you know um, dead keen on the city to surf and um, and you know the, there's a corporate cup here they run in Sydney called the um, uh, JP Morgan Challenge or something like that. So the guys are training up for these sorts of events and yeah, they they just absolutely put my ass um, every time we go out. So. Yeah, it's good. Good to be chasing someone. Yeah, the stairs. On the other hand, I, I, I haven't I haven't found my match on the old Willamaloo stairs just yet. Oh, I'm good. Sure, I'm sure there's someone out there. <laughs> it's a challenge. We'll put it out there. That's, That's good. It. So, mate, was was your introduction to trail running through uh, the Oxfam Trailwalker 
quality meat stuff originally? I think it. I think that's where it all where we got really keen on it through that. Yeah, I can't remember what year that was. Now it was around two thousand and eight or something like that. Um, but yeah, I mean that's where we all got quite into it. There was a group of guys that I did this um, trail walker event with, and you know it was more about going out, hanging out with your mates. Um, being in a bit of pain together, you know, enjoying the enjoying the trails, and yeah, we all got a bit of a taste for it back then. Um, but yeah, that's like we done. I think I'd done the the North Face prior to that, but that's when we really just got into it and thought this is something we really enjoy doing, and you know, wanted to do it every year, and um, yeah, sort of really yeah discovered it, I guess, back then. Uh, I've got, uh, I guess my only link to John O'Loughlin racing fame is we came second behind you guys one year. I think it might have been when you were running with Brendan. uh, I I was talking about that particular race with Brendan and he just mentioned how noisy your breathing was and how it was sending him suicidal for the first 50Ks, but it was kind of of, uh, soothing and cathartic in the second 50. So... Can you confirm you're a you know, particularly noisy breather or not? I can't confirm or deny these uh, these facts. <laughs> what I can what I can say though is I I had no idea that I was driving him insane. <laughs> it must have been really bad if he didn't say anything. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Or maybe he was just in the hurt box so much. Yeah, they they were quite fun those sort of events because you're only as good as your slowest guy as well, of course. Mm. And everyone goes through because you're running in a team of four and you have to get four across the line to get the time um, of the slowest got the last guy across the line. So everyone inevitably ends up going through a really bad period, a really bad patch in the event, and you get dragged along by the other guys. And then, as you know, with trail running, when you come out of the bad patches, you go through these really good phases and you're just sort of trotting along happy as Larry and then you look behind and you see one of your mates just absolutely suffering and it makes you feel better about life. (laughs) It's a good place to be, not not the fourth link in the chain. Yeah, 100%. So I actually got a listener question regarding Oxfam, actually. So this is from The Rookie. So just... Pertaining to what you're saying, what do you think it is about the trail walker event that leads to the record that I think you guys might hold standing at 11 hours-ish compared to the sub-10s we're seeing on a seemingly more difficult ultra-trail course? Yeah, well, it's exactly it's exactly that. So you're only as good as your slowest guy. Hmm. So um, everyone's going to go through those slow patches throughout the day. And you've just got to effectively wait for those people, whereas running 100K by yourself, um, you know, you're only as bad as those moments where you, you slow down. When, you, when you're on fire, you can just run as hard as you want. Yeah. Um, you know, the uh, Oxfam, you just don't have that luxury of, of um, you know, running fast whenever you, whenever you feel like it. You've got to wait for your man. You've got mm. to support them if they need a bit more time through the checkpoints. You've just got to hang there and make sure they, they, they're feeling all right. A um, couple of years, you know, we had injuries, so guys rolled their ankle. I rolled my ankle. I think the year we first got the record, it was before I ran with Brendan. That was with the quality meets. You know, I, I went over on my ankle a couple of times and had to have it strapped up and was hobbling along for the first 50-odd 50, 50 K. Mm. 
one of the other guys had a back issue or something like that. So, you know, you're constantly waiting for the one of your teammates, mm. which inevitably slows you down. Yeah, for sure. And what, what about individually? You reckon you could knock out a sub ten hour run on that particular course? I think yeah, I'd be pretty. I'd be pretty confident. I, you know, if it was around the UTA time and I was actually fit for it, for sure. Yeah. I think it's a bit easier course than the UTA. Yeah. Um, when I think about it, the first half is pretty tough though. For if you know, if you remember those bits from um, Barrow Waters through to Cowan, it's quite steep and technical, but the back end's relatively easy in comparison. Yeah, for sure. Have all those stairs and there's not as much vert. Um, the finish is obviously a lot easier. The UTA has got a pretty tough finish on it with a 10k slog uphill, <laughs> vertical yeah. kilometre. Yeah. Brutal, brutal, mate. I've got a I've got quite a number of listener questions actually today. Really? You brought a you brought a few out of the box, which was <laughs> this one comes in from the purest. So he says uh, most of your contemporaries are piecing together a living with coaching, meager prize money, and repurposing the soles of old running shoes whilst living on the trailhead out of the back of their station wagon. Do you ever look across from your six figure world of corporate takeovers and think, what if? <laughs> Not really, to be honest. I uh, I like the balance that I've got in my life. <laughs> um, I like, you know, I really love running, and it's a really good, it's a really important part of my life for sure. Um, but I don't really wish that I I could do it all the time. Part of the special thing is for me that I take a break from it every year, and you know, um, don't be competitive with the running. Just sort of get unfit, turn a bit of a slob. And then get to the point where I go, okay, I need to turn this round again. And that cycle seems to happen every year. So, yeah, I definitely don't. Um, like, yeah, I, I can see definitely why the attraction to that lifestyle, I think, I think it's awesome and you'd certainly learn a lot about yourself and it would be a great way to live, but certainly not, not for me. Like, yeah, I love running, but not enough to just make it my full existence. <laughs> Fair enough too, mate. Yeah. Another thing I've noticed about you over the years is that you, you know, by no means the smallest bloke in the pack. So how much weight are you giving away to someone like Brendan, for example? Oh, I'd be a fair bit, I reckon. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'd say it'd be, look, I, I, I'd tip the scales around 80 to, between 77 to 80 for when I'm when I'm fit at the moment, I'm probably like 85 to 87 or something disgraceful like that. <laughs> Makes it hard to run, really. Um, but yeah, so around the UTA time, probably 77 kilos, and that's kind of as skinny as I could get. Some of the guys that I race against would be, you know, 60 to 65 kilos. So you are giving away a fair bit. Mm, no. It is one of the bigger challenges for sure. Is like trying to get down get down to the the right weight um obviously every kilo that you're carrying around that makes a big difference over 100k mm. so you know losing that weight is one of the most important parts of the preparation for the race yeah. you know it becomes you know like a, a major priority you know if, um just doesn't sound great but just not eating <laughs> or just eating a lot less than um <laughs> It's not complicated, mate, is it? You normally would, yeah. It's like if you want to lose weight, the best way to do it is to not eat as much as you did before. Yeah. There you Make go, sure mate. Hard. <laughs> Just ask Chris Froome. I think he, uh, yeah, 
yeah. subscribes to that one as well. Yeah, you don't see many, um, you know, two-hour marathon runners that are carrying carrying too many extras. Nah, mate. <laughs> nah, exactly. So I've got a fairly long-winded listener question in from Brendan while we're here. Um, so, Jono, those experienced old stages like ourselves have had years to hone our race routines. And one of the more important aspects of this is post-race recovery. What I would like to know is what is your go-to post-hard workout food and drink? I, I think what you could share would really educate the younger breed of ultra runners who have been hoodwinked into chowing down those so-called expensive optimum recovery products. I would be particularly interested in hearing the scientific background behind your thinking here. <laughs> I reckon his post-race, post-hard uh, session recovery is not too different to mine either. <laughs> nothing like an icy cold, preferably VB or, or similar. <laughs> but it has to be extremely cold so you don't take, you, you know, you don't get the uh, intricacies of the flavour. But, uh, yeah, definitely icy cold VBs on the cards. Um, and the reason it's uh, it's... Got the perfect blend of carbohydrate, fluid, and whatever else you need for a good recovery. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, you've sold me. <laughs> I reckon there'd be a few of us out there. <laughs> Mate, you also mentioned that you uh, drank the keg dry at the Athlete Village in, in Portugal in 2016, I think. Yeah. <laughs> well, my results didn't uh, certainly reflected that because <laughs> I had an absolute shocker. <laughs> Actually, Brendan and I both did, but yeah, there was this never-ending keg of beautiful Portuguese pilsner at the um, at the athletes' dining hall there, and it was just the Aussie. It was pretty much the Aussies and Kiwis that were just. Oh, actually, a few of the European runners were hooking right in every night as well, if correctly. But yeah, it was just it was there. We were overseas. I wasn't in the best shape, and uh, yeah, I wasn't going to let it go to waste. Fantastic. Mate, can you tell us a little bit about that experience at the World Champs in Portugal, apart from the keg, obviously? Yeah, I mean, the the race we did was abs. I can't remember the train. What was the name? Uh, they they run an ultra there every year. I just can't remember the name of the. Patira. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. yeah, and the course was just absolutely beautiful. It was in the northern part of Portugal, and. I think it was the only national park in the whole of Portugal and it was just the most pristine country, um, some of the most pristine country I've ever run over, just uh, like, you know, like rivers of just the clearest water, mountains, but it was abs- it was 80K and it was absolutely brutal. And I think it started about 4 or 5 a.m., so I was all with head torches. You're running with some of the fastest guys in the world and the first the first part of the course is just, straight uphill i'm talking like you know four or five hundred meter vertical climb on just a road that goes straight up and these guys just take off like they're just absolutely flying um, because you know they're the best in the world it's the world chance for a reason and uh and i was just left i was left for dead and um basically yeah got to 50k in and was just shot shot to bits and hobbled my way home Probably have never been more grateful to finish a race in my life. Yeah. Um, I, I think Brent, Brent and I were pretty close to each other actually in that in that event. Both of us had terrible outings, um, and yeah, it was just it was, 
aside from that, it was a fantastic experience. Mm. Um, but it was more around, I guess, just going over there with a bunch of mates, um, enjoying, you know, enjoying the trails, not being – we weren't that competitive. So um, I would, you know, that's one thing. I'd, if I did it again, I'd certainly change. I'd try and uh, be in my best shape for the event. But, um, yeah, this time around I, I wasn't – I certainly wasn't in it any sort of form for the event. Um, but yeah, it was fantastic to, to event to do. And I'd, yeah, anyone who's thinking about sort of representing your country or something like that, um, I'd definitely, um, I'd definitely say go for it because it was, yeah, it was really awesome. Oh, it sounded like you, you buried yourself for your country, mate. So well done. Congratulations. Yeah. I've got a great photo of Brendan at the end, actually. I'll send it through to you after. He's just like, head in hands, covered in sweat with a singlet on. And it's just a picture. If a, if a picture of an ultra event ever said a thousand words, it's this one. I'll, I'll have to shoot it through here because it's just an absolute I've actually been sent one of the two of you uh, in, in pretty bad looking shape at the end of that race as well. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Someone's out to get you here, Jono. Probably actually. <laughs> So, mate, you, you've had the perfect bird's eye view of the progression of trail running and, and more specifically the ultra trail event. So what, what are some of the real positives in your mind from this explosion? And, and then conversely, what do you miss about the old days? Oh, I don't – I really think that it's it's all positive. You know, the more people that are getting into it, um, the better for so many reasons, one being just general health and well-being. Two um, is the, the people being out in the bush, seeing how beautiful it is and wanting to, um, ha- you know, have those um, conservation initiatives, you know, to preserve those beautiful, yeah, beautiful parts of our country, being more um, aware and conscious of the environment and the effect that humans have on the environment, all the way through to, you know, the, the health benefits for lots and lots of people that weren't really into it before. So from that perspective, I think it's just, yeah, I think it's an awesome thing. Um, there's one thing going to run on the road, doing a marathon on the road, where a lot of people go and maybe do a, say, okay, that's my that's my goal, I'm going to do a marathon. But then they, 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 a lot of people do it and then don't do it again. Whereas I think with the, the trail running, the ultra stuff, people go and do a 50K event or, you know, pace 22 or, the um, 100k ultra and they they get the bug and they just want to keep going back and doing it more and more so um yeah i really i think it's all i think it's all good um really um don't see too much a lot of people like the you know sticking to the roots and the core of uh trail running and, and the meaning of it whatever that is i don't really get that i just think the more people that are into it, that enjoy it and understand how good it is for you, um, for, you know, your health and your mental health and it's, it's a bit of a meditation and, um, yeah, I think I think the more the merrier really. So don't see too much downside. I'm not really a purist in that sort of sense. Mm. Yeah. Um, I think that it was better when there was only three guys doing a race um, where there was no marking and, you know, you all got lost and you know, <laughs> <laughs> no, no. <laughs> it, it sounds horrible. But do you think there is anything the sport needs to be wary of as it grows more and more? Uh, yeah, I mean, the safety side of things I think is pretty important, but 
these big events are, are so good around that that um, I don't see that being a, a huge risk. Um, you know, you see that the things that happened in WA, for example, yeah, that was that was a a terrible thing, but I don't think mistakes like that would happen again. It certainly wouldn't happen with an event like Ultra Trail. You know, they're so diligent on the way they prepare and the safety of the runners, and it's pretty hard to get lost out there. For example, um, yeah. I couldn't I actually couldn't imagine how someone could get lost on that course given how well it's marked. So, <laughs> and you still need to carry a compass with you. It's unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, most people would probably get more lost with the compass than without it. <laughs> Bloody oath. <laughs> Trying to Bloody figure oath. out how to use the compass in the middle of the night. Or if you struggle. But, um, yeah, in terms of wary, um, I don't think – I don't really think so. Uh, I think they're pretty diligent and pretty um, – uh, careful around the, the safety of the runners and that sort of thing. So, I mean, you can't really vet people either to see how up for the event they are. It's not like you can do a heart scan or a body fat index or something and go, okay, you're you're healthy enough to run the event or you shouldn't do it because you're at risk of something. Mm. Really, it's up to the people who do the event to make sure that they're capable of, um, you know, doing it and not inflicting too much damage on themselves. So... Yeah. yeah, that's right. A, a little bit of self-awareness and uh, self-responsibility. That's it. And I don't think in the history of Ultra Trail, I'm not aware of anyone really, and I use Ultra Trail as an example because it's probably the biggest, you know, ultra running event in Australia, but I'm not aware of anyone that's really, you know, badly hurt themselves during the event. I think some someone might have broken their ankle once or a broken leg, um, but nothing, you know, nothing really life-threatening if if i could put it that way and no is that i don't know if that's correct or not that's just for my me doing the event over the years no but, i think that's my understanding as well i think it's been yeah very well put together yeah, yeah. from from that perspective um what, what about the idea of um performance enhancing drugs in our sport do you reckon that's a reality at, at some stage down the track or do you think it might be happening right now I think it's certainly a reality of pretty much any competitive sport. So any um, any sport where it's it's becoming elite, I guess it's just a it's just the hard reality of it. You know, the sport becomes the most important to that most important thing to that person, mm. and winning at all costs is just a, a reality for some people. That's that's just how they view it. So certainly, um, I wouldn't think that trail running is any different to any other sport out there where, yeah. as we all know, um, things like EPO and growth hormone, whatever else these guys take, would, I'd imagine, certainly improve your performance in, a, in an endurance sport like running, mm. um, just like it does in professional cycling, you know, where it is an endurance sport. So I, I have no doubt that at the very top level, um, it's probably starting to creep in somewhere. I couldn't imagine it's as rife in trail running as it is in other sports just because the money's not there to, to drive it. So some people, I would imagine in a sport like cycling, people would go through the mindset of saying, well, if I take this drug, I'm going to go a lot faster, I'm going to win that money, and I'm going to be able to you know, buy this house or live really well. Um, but if I don't take this drug, then I might be sort of amateur for the rest of my life. Mm. So that that's the sort of thought process that I'd imagine would go behind 
getting involved in that sort of thing. Yeah. The questions just aren't there for trail running at this stage, are they? So, and it's yeah. just you don't have the you don't have as much motivation. And I think the other thing with trail running is there's so many other variables that go into an event than just your engine. Mm. You know, like cycling is like how much can you how much VO two max do you have, and how hard can you go for yeah, just like, six okay. hours? There's not much else in it apart. And obviously, the skill of the riders there, but a sport like trail running. You've got the endurance, you've got there's some navigational aspect to it um, and a few other variables that I imagine you could get that right before you need to take it to the next level of, you know, getting involved in performance enhancing drugs and that sort of thing. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Plenty of room for improvement. Yeah. But I've, I've got a, um, a listener question all the way from the Dean of uh, UTS, actually. Yes. Uh, so you said... You started with an undergrad med science degree and moved into a master's of law with a taxation slant to it. So obviously you're not a particularly disciplined or driven bloke. Why the, <laughs> change, why the change midstream? I think I probably get a bit a bored a bit easily. Um, I've realised I got into the med science because my old man's a doctor, um, but I just realised it wasn't for me. And then I I, I thought yeah that this. I thought I'd become a, I was going to become a patent attorney. That really interested me. And I got into law at UTS, in fact. Um, and I did my undergrad med science degree at UTS as well, actually. Um, and, and then I, re I started doing the law degree and re I was really interested in the law. And um, it's just something that really appealed to me and my, my personality, whereas I don't think the med science and the, the doctoring did. So probably about lack of discipline. Not overly focused. <laughs> <laughs> Bit curious. Ah, <laughs> uh, that's good. A few things went into the mix, but I'm certainly glad of the uh, of the doing the law degree. I um, you know, really enjoy being a lawyer, and uh, yeah, um, yeah, it's a it's a really interesting job. That um, yeah, yeah, I'm sure. I've got a, uh, a a quote from you that I want to ask about regarding pain. So you've said you've got to weather the storm and you always just hope the storm's going to quickly pass over, but it can be pretty horrible. So <laughs> tell me about a, uh, a time during your race career that's been that horrible. Oh, there was one particular year in, in the UTA, actually, where I had oh, I really, there was a, a horrible storm. So Pau Capel, um, who a lot of your listeners I'm sure would would have heard of probably the best guy in the world at the moment um, came over to do the UTA with a couple of other elite guys, and and I was in pretty good shape. I'm like, right, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna go with him and see what happens. So we went out we went out at just cracking pace, and I got up to the uh, the, the aquatic centre, and I was just in the. It was a really hot day as well, so power's on for record pace. It would have been about 23 and humid. And I just, my, my body just started melting down. Like I had, I had cramps in like my fingers, my hammies were just writhing, cramping, my arms, my neck, eyelids were feeling like they were cramping. Like it was just, it was one of the worst experiences of my life. It was just horrible. Um, but like, like the, the saying goes, I guess, if you just, slow down a bit, manage, know what the cause of the 
um, the issue is. And in my case, it was probably, I know there's a big debate about there, out there about the salt thing, but for me, I know that the salt does help fix the issue. So salt and hydration and just slowing down and just going, right, I'm not going to beat power. I should have, I should have. I should always know that. That <laughs> <laughs> was going to thrash me every time, guaranteed. <laughs> um, and just focusing on finishing rather than finishing fast. Um, and so eventually that day that the storm did, you know, blow over. But it, it did last, yeah, it did last a long time and um, it wasn't very pleasant at the time. Um, oh, the full body cramp, mate, that's horrendous. Yeah, when you when it's getting in your eyelids, you know you, you you've got some problems. <laughs> that, that's the threshold. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, the, an add-on from that quote is that, but then you know if you just do everything right, get the nutrition right, you'll come out the other side, which you've sort of alluded to there. But, yeah. but what does uh, good nutrition look like for you on race day? Yeah, it's 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 pretty simple for me actually. It's it's water or like a, an electrolyte, not even a sugary electrolyte thing, but like a, what do you call it, gastrolyte sort of supplement that has the salt in it um, that you need um, for your hydration. So like a, 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 a gastrolyte type drink. Um, and then pretty much shot blocks. I don't know if you know those um, shot blocks from Cliff, the Cliff company. And that's sort of it. So just sit on the water, the shot blocks, um, some of them have the caffeine in it, so you get that, you know, the sort of added boost from the caffeine. And then the salt, so just managing the salt with the water to make sure you're at that sort of right level. Um, <clears throat> and that's that's my nutrition throughout the day. So, and then towards the end, maybe a few gels thrown into the mix, but I just I just think that they taste gross, so I try and avoid them as much as possible, but sometimes <laughs> they become a necessary evil. Yeah, bloody hell. But yeah. that sounds very simple, though. That's that's fantastic. Yeah, and you just, um, you know, you just make sure that you just keep putting enough in to keep you going throughout the day. So hmm. uh, with the training that I do, I try and not have as much. I, I try and train so that I'm not fully fueled for training to sort of replicate the race conditions. So... You know, I'll do a long run in the morning without eating and uh, having breakfast before before the run. And then long runs on the weekend, I won't really – I'll try and not fuel for about an hour or two. Mm. Um, but inevitably in a long ultra ultra race, you need for fuel increases as the race goes on. So first sort of couple of hours, you're not eating that much. But as the day comes goes on, you feel those waves of you have food and then you feel the sort of – the post-food crash come in about 20 minutes, half an hour later, you need to fuel again. And those little oscillations become more and more frequent as the day goes on. So you've just got to be aware of it, really. It's like your body does tell you when you need to eat and you just need to think about, okay, how am I feeling? Am I feeling a bit flat because I haven't had any food? Um, the answer is probably yes. Just make sure you get something in. So just sort of listening to your body a little bit around that stuff. Oh, that's good. It's great advice. Thanks, mate. I've got a, um, a listener question in from Scotty Richmond. Oh, yeah, Scotty. So you, you, you don't appear to race all year round, and it looks as though you have the ability to get proper out of shape before burying yourself into an intense, mildly insane training program yeah. and then absolutely crushing it on race day. Is there some strategy here, or are you just a complete masochist? Yeah, look, there's a bit of both, I think, um, my wife wouldn't really be too keen if I was racing all year round, so that's one thing. 
Um, two, there is a bit of masochism. I think I'd probably, if I trained as hard as I did in the lead up to the, some of these races, I would probably um, not enjoy it as much as well. So, like, getting out of shape is part of the process because it helps you, It for me, anyways, it helps me um, get focused and start training again and knowing that and, like, you know, I know that I've got a long way to go, so I've got to, I've got to train hard and effectively for a short period of time in the lead-up to the race. Um, the other good thing about, and I'm not... I'm certainly not giving this advice to anyone because it's not definitely not the way you do this. <laughs> but you do see the good improvements which motivate the training as well. So, you know, when you're out of shape, week to week, you do see really solid gains. Um, that being said, more and more as I get older, because I've, I've just turned 40, um, as I get older, I'm certainly seeing the, uh, the benefits of staying pretty fit all year round. Mm. So... At the moment, for example, no race in sight, but training every day, maintain, you know, keeping the weight low, keeping that base fitness there. So not not as extreme as I used to be. Um, okay. It's, yeah. It's still got a long way to go. <laughs> well, mate, I, I always thought it was a, just a show of disdain for all the egg and spoon races apart from the monuments of six-foot track, Mount Solitary and Ultra Trail Australia. You just, yeah. no respect. No. Nah. <laughs> no, not really. I mean, they're the one. They're, they're all, those three events are the three closest um, trail running events to my house. So, <laughs> <laughs> perfect. That's simple. <laughs> do, do you reckon that uh, sort of on-off season helps you to remain generally injury-free? I think so. Yeah, definitely. So, um, I think that coupled with the. I still have the on-off, but also try and run every day in the off-season, if that makes sense. So I just don't do intensive training during the off-season, but still try and get out most days or, you know, five days a week for an easy sort of trot. I think for me that's the right balance because if I just down tools on running in the off-season and then try and get back into it too quickly, inevitably I'll get an injury, you know, like a calf tear or, you know, hurt my back or something like that. So the key is to have a sort of a nice steady base there that you can um, act, you can sort of leverage off and, and move into an intense phase of training quite quickly without injuring yourself. But I, I reckon if I, um, if I did train all year round, I think I'd get, I think I'd get some pretty nasty injuries, which I've managed to avoid to date anyway. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting topic. And, and there's not too many runners out there that, I guess schedule that off season in there, but I think there's some value for most people thinking in terms of an off season. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, for one, you sort of it takes the intensity and that focus out of the running as well. So you can actually go. I find that I, I enjoy it just for what it is. Hmm. Um, the clock, the clock doesn't go on. You stick the backpack on, and you just go out and um, run, you know, 5K into work and just enjoy the morning. Mm. There's no times, you're not looking at heart rate or how fast you're going. You're just purely enjoying the process of running um, without any pressure. So I think from a longevity point of view, certainly for me, and, you know, everyone's different, of course, but from a being able to have, you know, to keep going year in, year out, that's a big part of it for me is just to have that, yeah, okay, I've got a few races, I really want to, um, 
see how how good I can go in those races, and the rest of the time is just let's just enjoy running for what it is. Mm. Part of the daily routine, probably mostly it's a sort of meditation or something like that. Um, enjoying just the daily sweat um, and thinking, you know, about things um, with that <clears throat> sort of running meditation that you get without mm. uh, really thinking about running too much at the same time. All the best ideas happen while you're running, mate. Everyone knows I, that. I find that it's for me. It's like it's a really important part of my day too. Where <laughs> stick the backpack on, particularly when there's no pressure around the running, when you're not thinking about a race and how fast you might go. That you got to beat and this sort of stuff, but really just just cruising along and just letting your mind wander about all all sorts of topics, whether it's work or family or things that are coming up, um, life in general. It's um, yeah, it's a really um, for me critical part of the day. Really, it's uh, very important. That's good. Nice to schedule that in. But I've got a uh, bit of an obscure question from the florist. I don't know if you know the florist, but anyway. I so, know lots of florists, but not the florist. The florist, the florist. So, as the undisputed poster child for trail running in the Australian corporate law community, do you think you would put more time into Harvey Specter over Mount Solitary or a flat track bully course like the New York Marathon? This this implies you know who Harvey Specter is, I guess. I am for, I am aware of who Harvey Specter is. One of the great lawyers, I understand. <laughs> Definitely one of the best looking ones. <laughs> yeah, and there's a sub question here. Uh, have you met him? And is he as shit a bloke as he seems? Seems like a complete dickhead. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Forrest. That yeah, was so many young lawyers aspire to be Harvey Specter. I don't know why. Seems like a bit muscle. <laughs> <laughs> He's got a great salad though, so that's yeah. important. It's important, <laughs> mate. Um, I was, I was having a look at the uh, six foot track leaderboard from the Sydney Striders Club. So for the listeners, let me read it out in descending order from seven. So record for the six-foot track time. So I've got Chris Truscott, Tim Cochran, Brendan Davies, Andrew Tucky, Tony Fatterini, Dave Crenidi, and sitting on top of the podium is John O. O'Loughlin with uh, 323.16. You're kidding. So, so, good company there. <laughs> so how often do you remind these blokes who the alpha dog is then? I, I rarely get the opportunity these days. I wish I could more often. I can certainly, I'll certainly text Brendo and let him know though. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, and at least one of those blokes is a six foot track winner. Um, but having the fastest time amongst them, is there a burning desire to stand on the top of that particular podium? Oh, not that one for me. I think I've, I've passed my, I've, I've most likely passed my prime in terms of six foot track uh ability to you know go at three three twenty three that uh that was i was i had a good year that year you know i had a it was the perfect conditions there were a few guys that were pretty fast that year because that that, only, that was only good for fourth believe it or not is that right yeah so i think Stu gibson won it um dave byrne was second with about a three twenty and then Mark Green was 3.22 and I was 3.23. So, yeah, go figure, right? Any other year or, you know, 90% of the years it would have won it, but that year was only good for a fourth. So, wow. um, yeah, it's a, a lot of work went, like a lot of hard training went into that um, six foot. Um, and I just don't, I don't know if I've, I've just got that, that 
level of thrashing my body in me again anymore. <laughs> <laughs> never say never, Jono. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe on the cards for next year. It'll be a pretty special event next year, I think, you know, with all the stuff that happened this year and the fact that they had to cancel it and stuff like that. So, yeah, yeah. I agree. So, I it's one to watch, mate, for sure. And, and so I guess final question, you, you seem confident that um, October Ultra Trail will go ahead at this stage? Yeah, I, yeah. I do. I mean, I, I'm no expert in this stuff, but it seems like uh, Australia's done a pretty good job of managing the whole COVID thing. Things are opening back up pretty quickly. Um, you know, if they're looking at opening restaurants and, and bars and things like that. I can't see any reason why you wouldn't allow people to go run in the bush. But, I mean, yeah, I guess you, know, you you just don't know what's around the corner, if there's going to be another outbreak and that sort of thing. But I'm, I'm an optimist, optimist, so I'm pretty hopeful that they do uh, they do hold it uh, in October for sure. And, and so that being said, when does the masochistic uh, block of training start kicking in? Oh, I, bet, I was thinking about that today, actually, when I was running. Just trying to plan because I've got to plan the plan the right time. I don't want to go too early, otherwise I'll burn out. Don't want to go too late, otherwise I'm not going to be fit enough. So it's, That's right. It's uh, the, it's the perfect level of procrastination. I'll probably I reckon it'll kick in in about probably July sometime. Mm-hmm. Give myself about ten weeks. I think is probably enough with it with a decent decent base fitness. Ten weeks of really hard training, and um, I reckon I could be in decent shape for it. Okay, and we're aiming for one step higher on the podium this year, Jono? Oh, look, I'd be happy with um, anything under 10 hours would be that I'd be stoked with. Because okay. you just you can't set too high expectations because you know what it's like. Like that yeah. year when power came out, I mean, that was a bit silly, but it's one of those things where anything can happen on a day. You can have a shitty, you can have a shitty day out and be 11 hours um, but you've still got to look at it and be happy with it so yeah as long as I beat Scotty Richmond I'll be happy <laughs> <laughs> that's great but I'll, I'll let him know put in a little dig for you yeah. <laughs> uh, mate, well thanks so much for your time I know you're a busy man at the moment and um, yeah really appreciate all the the tips for this particular race I think there's some valuable stuff there Jono um, thanks, thanks for having me mate it's been uh, it's been a lot of fun and um yeah, it's been uh, it's been a fun afternoon. So I really enjoyed being on the show. No worries, thanks, Jono. We'll uh, we'll catch up soon for a, for a proper run and a proper beer too. I hope. Ah, uh, mate, I'll take the VB on for sure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> thanks, mate. See you later. Thanks a lot. See ya. Bye. Yeah. Uh. Yeah.